Open your Bibles, please, to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're continuing in this series called A Faith That Makes Some Noise. And today, the title of the sermon is When Jesus Returns. Christians believe Jesus is returning again. Does the thought of Jesus' return fill you with fear and anxiety or joy and encouragement? The Thessalonians had a mixture of both. They were stressed over what Jesus' return meant for those who had already died in their community. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to those who had already died? And then they began to wonder about their own participation in Jesus' return. How confident could they really be that they're going to be ready when Jesus returns? The Thessalonians, they were clearly taught about Jesus' return, his second coming. If you remember, in chapter 1, verse 9, we're told how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is what they were known for. They had turned to the living God, away from idols. They were waiting for his Son from heaven. So they had been taught about Jesus' return. There was anticipation and expectation that was building up in their hearts. But in the meantime, some of them had died. Was this due to persecution? They were under severe persecution. Was this simply due to the brokenness of life and sickness? We don't know all the details, but we know that some had died. And the, the Thessalonians simply didn't know what would become of those who had died when Jesus returned, what would become of them? Would they be able to participate in Jesus' return? Or would they somehow miss out on what was, was coming? So these passages have been the topic of much debate and contention. I, I ran into a, a local pastor uh, a few months ago, and I told him, hey, we're going to be going through the book of First Thessalonians, and he just he blurted out, oh, man, you want to hit on, some, on controversy right away, don't you? And, and I kind of laughed, and I'm thinking, well, I mean, anywhere you go in Scripture, you're, you're running into some controversial stuff, right? But the irony is that Paul wrote this portion, this controversial portion of his letter, he wrote it to encourage the church of Thessalonica. And that's my goal for us today, that it would encourage us, that it would encourage you. So let's try to put ourselves in the position that this new church found themselves in. They're new believers facing severe persecution. They're trusting King Jesus will return and establish his kingdom, meaning this, meaning that Jesus is going to right every wrong and usher in all that he has in store for his people. He's going to free them from the corruption and brokenness that they were swimming in. That's hope. That's expectation. Jesus' kingdom had come in their hearts. They had bowed their lives to King Jesus. So they were new creations in Christ but they were expecting Jesus still to come. We pray your kingdom come. It has come and is coming. They looked to Jesus' resurrection as proof that all of this would happen. Now, what do I mean by that? We talked last week about the importance of the resurrection and why it matters to us as Christians. Have you ever seen a, a Rube Goldberg machine? Or this, Rube Goldberg was an artist, a cartoonist, who would draw these cartoons, these, these uh, uh, 
cartoons of these machines, very complicated machines that would accomplish very simple tasks. If you've ever seen these, maybe you've seen some of these online or on YouTube or whatever. One action sets off an amazing chain reaction. The Thessalonians believed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead set off a chain reaction that would see its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus's return. It was a guarantee. But they still had questions. Here are some questions we're going to look at this morning. Number one, when Jesus returns, what's going to happen to those who have already died? That was a question in their minds. Number two, when is this all going down? And what does it mean for those of us who are still alive? So before we jump into this, let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to open your word together. We pray that by your spirit, you would give us insight, that you would help us to understand, Lord, what's written here. Help us to see its importance for our lives here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, about those who have already died, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We'll pause there. About those who have already died, are they going to participate in this grand return, this beautiful event that we're expecting? Will they experience all the benefits of it, or are they going to miss out? You know, the longer I live, I just had a birthday, by the way. We all have birthdays, don't we? I just had mine, though. The longer I live, the more pain and brokenness I experience. I think of debilitating diseases that are crippling my dear friends. I think of death that snuffs out people prematurely. I think of the heartache of terrorism and war and injustice on every level. You experience it, too. The longing in my heart grows for what will be. The Thessalonians were anticipating Jesus' return. They were living as if that day of Jesus' return could happen any day. But now that some of them had died, they had some new questions and some new concerns. And Paul, he uses uh, the metaphor of uh, sleep. He talks about sleep. It's a metaphor, a euphemism for death. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to grieve like the rest of mankind, he says, who have no hope. Grief is appropriate. It's actually an expression of love. But the predominant worldview of Paul's day, at least 
then and there was that death was it. There's nothing after death. And since there's nothing after death, then grief was heavy. There was no hope because death has the final say. But he says, we aren't to grieve that way. He says in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe, we'll pause there. You know, Paul is most likely just quoting an early confession or a creed. This statement of faith, he's saying, Jesus died and rose again, and it would have been shorthand. It would have been a a summary confession for all that was accomplished for the Thessalonians in Jesus Christ. So Paul leans on that confession as his confidence and sure foundation for what he says about those who have died. Because the Christian literally belongs to Jesus, because we're found in Christ, his resurrection is a guarantee of ours. We can be confident in the face of death that death does not have the final say. And so he's saying, you grieve because they're no longer with you, but you grieve as one who has hope. Death does not have the final say. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. And he says in verse 38, For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing will come between us and God's love expressed in Jesus, not even death. And then in Philippians, he writes to the church of Philippi, And he says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The resurrection of Jesus is the center of God's plan of redemption. It's the basis for hope in future resurrection of our bodies and of the restoration of all creation. Did you hear what I just said? This is huge. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. I talked just a second ago about the reality that we will be raised because Jesus is raised. But did you know all of creation will be restored as well? Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, We were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. He's saying this, creation is eagerly 
waiting for its redemption. It groans. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but I heard that birds only sing in a minor key. It's still a pretty song, but they're groaning. Creation will be restored. When sin is completely eradicated, when death is no more, it's hard to grasp, I know, but it's fun to try. So Paul was holding up two things for the Thessalonians to give them hope and encouragement. Jesus' res- resurrection and Jesus' teaching. He, he goes on to say this. this is, basically, in verse 15, he's saying, this isn't my personal opinion. My words are in, in agreement with Jesus. Look what he says in verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying this is not my opinion. My words are in agreement with Jesus' teaching. We who are still alive will not precede those who have died. It won't happen. God's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. You know, it's been a really difficult month for me, personally. I've participated in two funerals, two friends, both unexpected. Death hurts like nothing else. It's like a thief. It steals those we love. It is the consequence of a dark rebellion that lives on in every human heart. But death does not have the final say. I want to turn our attention to another passage that will encourage us to see that death does not have the final say. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Listen, I tell you, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you hear what he's saying? You can stand firm in the here and now, because you know the power of the resurrection and what it means for your life. You will be raised to life. Where, O death, he's like taunting death. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is is your victory? Christ is our victory. He has power over death. He's conquered it. Look back with me to Thessalonians. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul's essentially telling the Thessalonians, listen, I I know you're concerned that your friends won't experience what you're anticipating, but they will. 
They will experience it. They're not going to miss out. What Paul doesn't do here, he doesn't deny consciousness after death. He's not putting forward this idea of soul sleep. If you've ever heard of that. The state of sleep until Jesus returns and then all souls are resurrected. There's all kinds of views out there about what's happening after death. He doesn't deny fellowship with Jesus. And in fact, we can stand firm on what Paul was saying to the Philippians. He says, well, whether I stay with you or I, 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 I depart and I'm with Christ, he, he spoke of, of dying and being with Christ and he longed for that. He doesn't deny fellowship with Jesus after death. He just says that they're not going to miss out on the return of Christ and that the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then he says, we who are still alive. So Paul and the Thessalonians, they had no reason to think that it couldn't happen to them in their day, that Jesus could return in their time. And he says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul gives us some cool imagery to work with as we imagine a historical event that's going to take place. He mentions a trumpet call. He mentions clouds. He mentions meeting the Lord in the air. This is end time language. This is apocalyptic language. Apocalypse means revelation. It means unveiling. It conveys the idea of a veil being drawn back. It's imagery communicating something about an event we're trying to grasp. We're trying to understand. He's using vivid symbolism here. It's a literal event that's going to take place. Don't get me wrong. But when he says to meet, he uses this technical term in in the ancient world that, that was referring to a delegation of citizens that would have left the city to meet an arriving dignitary or an arriving official or king. So when he's talking about meeting the Lord in the air, he's using this term that would have referred to, again, the citizens leaving their city to meet a dignitary and then escort that dignitary back into the city. This is the term he's using. It's interesting. This delegation, this group of citizens that would have gone out to meet the dignitary, it would have involved a lot of fanfare. It would have involved celebration and honor. Paul's saying, Both those who have died, those who are alive, will meet the Lord Jesus. Take comfort in this. That's what he's saying. And the most comforting thing that he mentions is, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's what he says. We're going to be with the Lord forever. Your friends who have died, they won't miss out on anything. Now, I know you have a lot more questions about what I've said. That's okay. I have questions. What's it going to actually look like? What's it going to be like? I I don't know. We'll get to more of that in a minute. The second thing that Paul addresses about times and dates. When is this going down? Now, let's read. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light 
and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. You know, my mom has asked me a number of times, hey, Darren, when do you think the Lord's returning? And every time I, I say the same thing, well, mom, it's one, one day closer. We're one day closer to Jesus' return. Too many teachers have tried to nail down a day and time of Jesus' return. You, you can't do it. It's not going to happen. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it refers to the day of the Lord. This is another way of referring to the second coming of Jesus. In in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he mentions the coming of the Lord, and our being uh, gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So he talks about the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord as the same event. Sometimes the day of the Lord is referred to as the day of Christ or the day. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord often refers to the day of judgment on God's enemies and deliverance of the Lord's people. In other words, God is on mission to confront human and spiritual evil on every level. The kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven. This is a day the church should look forward to with great anticipation. It's a day of liberation and hope. It's the day when Jesus frees our world from corruption and brings about the new things that he has in store for us. It's a day we should look forward to. That day, Paul says, will come like a thief. And so Paul draws on the teachings of Jesus who talks this way about his return, and about the day of the Lord. It's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. And it will be a threat to those who are unprepared. And so there's warning found here. But Paul, he even quotes a a Roman uh, slogan, a popular imperial slogan of the day, propaganda that would have been promoted on coins and on monuments that proclaimed peace and safety. The idea here is that people are walking around in their day proclaiming peace and safety. Why? Because they bowed their knee to Rome. And Rome would bring in peace and safety. But he's saying, listen, you're not going to find the peace and safety that you need by bowing to Rome. No political, no governmental authority can give you that. And so there's warning that's found here. Look again what he says. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness. So that this day should surprise you like a thief. You see? See what he's doing? He's encouraging them. What about those who are still alive? What about life now? What does all this mean for us today? He says, you are not in darkness. You are children of the light. You're children of the day. 
Now, how, 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 I'm sure many of you have flown internationally. Now, I can remember even, uh, you know, last year flying to Kenya and thinking, oh my goodness, my body was on a different schedule. Middle of the day, it, it felt like the middle of the night. Because really, technically, right, I, I mean, I just, in, in the middle of their night, it was like day, where I'm from. So it's 3 a.m., and my body thinks it's whatever, noon. It's, that's hard. And Paul was essentially telling the Thessalonians, you're in the middle of the world's night, but you're already children of the day. You're already children of the light. And God's daytime life has broken into the pitch black night. Following Jesus produces a completely countercultural way of life. It does. It's a holy life. Sometimes that way of life creates suspicion and conflict. People won't understand why we live how we live sometimes. It's countercultural. We're children of the day. We're children of light. Jesus says he is the light of the world, right? Talks about himself being the light. And he says, now let your light shine. In verse 6, Paul uses sleep imagery again, but in a different way this time. Thank you, Paul. In the first uh, way he uses sleep, he talks about it as death. In verse 6 of chapter 5, he uses it in a different way. He says, don't be like those who are asleep or unaware or indifferent to what's coming. Instead, live awake. Be alert and self-controlled. Listen, maybe you're realizing, Darren, I have not been living awake to the reality of Jesus' return. Maybe as you're reading this, you're beginning to see that you weren't even, you've never even thought about the return of Jesus this way before. That's okay. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're thinking about it. You might have been in church for all your life and, and never thought about what it means to live self-controlled and alert, eagerly anticipating and expecting the return of Jesus. Well, that's why we're here. We're here to learn. We're here to grow in our faith. We're here to look to Scripture and let it mold and shape us. How are we called to live as we wait? Self-controlled and alert. Alert. Live awake. Don't live as if you're drunk. Don't live intoxicated on the world's excuses. Don't live under the influence of the surrounding culture that tells you how to live and how to act. Bow your life to King Jesus and find true safety, true peace, true hope. That's what he's saying. Live as children of the light because that's what you are. And he calls them to put on something, God's armor. Put on faith, hope, and love. Put it on. And this isn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing lifestyle of faith, love, and hope that he calls us to. And then Paul adds these encouraging words about their participation in what's to come. Look at these. Oh, these are so encouraging. Uh, Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and he goes back to the, the death, uh, alive or dead, we may live together with him. The reason any of this is possible, he's saying, is because he died for us. Again, shorthand for all that Christ did. And his death for us creates this domino effect. Why? Oh, because he is the first fruit of our resurrection. Because Christ has been raised, we will be raised. Because Christ has been raised, he's returning. He says, your destiny Rest on God's work, not yours. Rest in what he's done in Jesus. He's clearly intending to encourage this suffering community. I hope you're encouraged. 
I know you might have a lot of questions that I'm sorry, but they will go unanswered about Jesus' return. The end result of his encouragement is that we may live together with him. He repeats what he already said in in chapter 4, verse 17, this being together with the Lord. All right, church, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Are you living with an eager expectation? Are you alert and self-controlled? Are you living as children of light? Children of the day. Jesus is returning. It will be personal. It will be physical. It will be visible. It will be sudden. It will be glorious. He came as a baby in weakness and humility, but he will come in glory and power on the clouds of heaven which represents his power and authority. And he will come with holy angels and trumpet blasts and angels shouting, joined by those who have gone before us. And he will be the unmistakable King of kings and Lord of lords. Because that's who he is. I want to close with two passages. First, Titus. Chapter 2, verse 13. No, we're going to back up. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then finally, I want to end the way we began with an exhortation that Josh gave us earlier, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. When you think of Jesus' return, does it fill your heart with joy, anticipation, expectation? Or are you filled with fear? What are you going to do as a result of what you've just heard today? How do we respond to this? Maybe you need to Get right with Jesus. Maybe you've realized you've not been living sober. You've been asleep to these realities. And now you're starting to stir. Your heart's coming awake. Now's the time to go to him. Live as children of the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these words of encouragement. And what we find here is that those who have died in Christ, they're not going to miss out on your return. Jesus, we know that they will be with you in death. And they, too, will be raised to life. Jesus, thank you for what you've done in conquering the grave. You are the first to go before us in resurrection. And we'll follow. Thank you for the hope that we have in you the reality of sins forgiven, the reality of love experienced, the reality of relationship 
Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, the hope of the world. Amen.